0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast and editor-in-chief of The Dispatch. This podcast is brought to you by Dispatch Media and thedispatch.com. Go there today to um, uh, sign up for all our wares and do all sorts of good things and help the cause. And um, we really appreciate it. Um, And I am joined today by a friend of this podcast, an old friend of mine, and um, and now a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a the columnist at the New York Times, and he's a co-host of the Argument podcast at the uh, New York Times. Ross Douthat. Ross, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Joan. It's good to see you. Um, so, I pronounced Douthat correct. You did. Okay. Yes. So, uh, I have. To, this is the really burning central question. How many times a day does someone mispronounce your name?
1: Your well, I, I lead a hermit's life, John, uh. for exactly that reason. <laughs> just, uh, just to avoid. No, I mean the, the, the truth is that you can tell the class line in America or the pretension line, uh-huh. if you prefer, by how my name is mispronounced. Interesting. Uh, because when I was growing up, uh, you know, coming up hard, as one does, mean streets and so right. on. Everybody said, do that, right? People
0: don't know this, but do you that. actually have a teardrop tattoo, right? I do. <laughs> I do. I, they,
1: they airbrush it out for the Times uh, op-ed photos. So do that was like, you know, the cross of my childhood. And then there was a moment, um, I believe it was at a French poetry contest. Uh-huh. Is, as, know, one... as one does when one comes uh-huh. up hard, um, <laughs> where the woman, in, you know, was reading my name off the list and said, Ross Dutat. And uh-huh. at the time I thought this was, you know, it was just a French uh, sort of a French pronunciation assumption, but the more I entered into sort of the snobbish, pretentious worlds in which we now hang out, the more people assumed that it must be French and uh-huh. it must be Dutat. Uh, so those are the those are the two main mispronunciations. And the reality is that it was Northern English and it was Douthwaite, I uh-huh. believe, and spelled D O W. And for some reason, my misty ancestors, when they came to America, put a U in instead of a W. Probably thought it classed it up a uh-huh, little bit. Uh-huh. And no one has been able to pronounce it since.
0: Because I hear – it's weird. It's just one of these things where you should feel honored about your cultural footprint that <laughs> your name does come up quite a bit. But – panels, and on C-SPAN, whatever, the number of times I hear, I, I would say I hear your name mispronounced in all sorts of creative ways more often than I hear it pronounced correctly.
1: Yeah. That, that shows that I've failed <laughs> in my career. I mean, the, the one reason really to become a quasi-public figure with a name like mine is to encourage people to pronounce it correctly so that my children will you know, shake free of a little bit of this burden. And it sounds like I'm not doing a good enough job. It's but may this podcast be the tipping point where a thousand doubt in bloom, um, in- bloom <laughs> blossom, you know, something.
0: Uh, iterate. Iterate. Um, all right. So uh, you, were, you were actually in the building, which is rare, although I assume that's going to change more now that you a, you're an adjunct
1: fellow of some sort? I'm a fellow of some sort. Yes. Um, uh, visiting. I think visiting fellow. And I'm literally visiting here. So, yeah. I'm, so I'm,
0: I've been associated in one way or the other with AI for more than two decades and um, off and on, I should say. And uh, I still don't quite understand the taxonomy of who's a resident this versus a visiting that versus a scholar versus that, the other thing. Although Gary Schmidt was on here the other day and he said, "Because he has a PhD, then he's a scholar. That
1: makes him a scholar."
0: I did not. That was. That's Actually. when I learned <laughs> that that was the dramatic. which
1: makes sense, right? Except it means I will never be even a visiting scholar. Except
0: I'm pretty sure that Irving Kristol, who did not have a PhD, was a visiting scholar.
1: So I. It's but that's the Irving Kristol exception. To yeah, to every rule there must be. If you're Irving Kristol, the rule doesn't doesn't apply. I think that's probably
0: right. Okay, so now that we've scared off the uncommitted from this podcast with this, <laughs> this 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 You've got to cull them early. what my father would call nano talk, which is one step below small talk. Um you're actually in the building because you just did a panel on post-Christian religion?
1: Post-Christian religion. We did uh we had Tara Isabella Burton who is a I guess you could call her a New York-based journalist. Uh, She was at Fox. She wrote a a really excellent novel, sort of in a talented Mr. Ripley thriller kind of vein. And she's written a book on basically spirituality among the millennials. Mm -hmm. Um, So she was talking about that. And then in my capacity as organizer and moderator, I paired her with Stephen Smith from the University of San Diego, who wrote a really interesting book called pagans and Christians in the city a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago. uh, And his argument basically was that something that we should call paganism is still an incredibly powerful force in Western life and it sort of ebbs and flows, but it's sort of come back. So we were talking about whether it's possible to look at sort of the zone of spiritual but not religious, religious but not christian, new age, witchcraft, sort of elite progressivism and say that maybe there's some kind of post-christian religion here that's more than just, you know, as conservatives we we often like to accuse liberals and progressives of sort of being crypto-religious. But what I was interested in is whether you can go sort of a step further than that and whether you can say, well, there are actually these rites and rituals and religious practices besides just reading the New York Times op-ed page that are coming into being.
0: So um, I wish I could have been here for the panel, um, but I had prior day drinking commitments. And, um, (laughs) uh, but, um,
1: I think it will be online.
0: Yes. Uh, people who are interested in Listeners that can, can go to AI's website. I'm sure they'll be able to find it shortly. That said, um, this is a subject I sort of find fascinating. And I am one of those conservatives in the spirit of Will Herberg and um, Eric Vagelan, another name that is very difficult to get pronounced correctly. Um, is it Vagellan? Every now and then I settle into
1: Vogelin and then – or Vogelin. I, I Vogelin. had said Vogelin, but I uh, you must hear it more often than I do. Yeah,
0: but then then I think it was Charles Kessler said the V in German is an F sound, so it's Vogelin or something like that. <laughs> so that's why I just tend to say it really fast so people assume I'm comfortable with it. Um, I, I'm, I'm a pretty – and I know you've, I think you read, reviewed one of his books. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of Michael Burley mm-hmm. and his stuff about uh, political religion. And um, so I'm one of these conservatives who actually does see religion sort of everywhere. And the Jonathan Haidt Moral Foundation stuff has really sort of underscored that for me. Do you, you know, what was it? I think it was Irving, first of all, used to say that man is theotropic and Will Herberg called us... Uh, Homo religio right do you believe that we have an innate religious sentiment that expresses itself either through orthodoxy or through whatever path is available?
1: Yes, I mean I guess I'd phrase it as I think it's very hard for human beings to live without something that occupies the role that religion has traditionally played. Um, I mean the idea of a religious instinct, it's a little dicey just because there's there's clearly such a range of instincts that mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. have. Like one thing I'm always struck by is, you know, I, for various complicated reasons of biography and formation and divine providence and so on, have ended up as like a representative of conservative Catholicism, okay. right, on the New York Times op-ed page. But I know a lot of conservative Catholics who are so much more religious than I am in sure. the sense that they have a personality that just seems more oriented toward the divine. So I think there's, this, there's a huge range of religious instincts that manifest themselves in different personalities in different ways. But there does seem to be some fundamental need for something in that space that is really, really common across personality types and across cultures. Yeah. I mean,
0: I, I'm fully with you that there's a spectrum, right? I mean, there are just there are all sorts of natural human compulsions that are much stronger for some congenital or genetic or whatever or a heritable reason in some people than in other people, right? We would all – as conservatives, we would both agree that a propensity towards violence is part of human nature. Right. Not to say that there's a moral equivalence between violence and religion, but just as an example, right? There's
1: occasionally some overlap. Yeah, there's yeah.
0: occasion. But so um, uh, big if true. And um, – but that doesn't mean that there aren't certain people for who, for whatever reason, nature, nurture, combination of both, where the propensity towards violence isn't a lot stronger than in other people, right? Um, because when you said at the when you were summarizing the panel, you said that paganism plays a power still plays a powerful force in the West, my initial annoying interrupting self was restrained long enough to wait till now to say, well, why just the west isn't couldn't you argue that paganism is a human thing, yes, and it has manifestations in different places and different ways but it's it's not just the west
1: no and this is this is actually to, um since i'm speaking for him this is stephen smith's actual argument uh-huh. that what he 's calling paganism is basically a belief in a kind of imminent divine where divinity and so on are sort of interwoven with this world and are experienced in this sort of interplay of the material and metaphysical without necessarily having the idea of some sort of external creator god outside of it. And and his argument, take it for what you will, is that this is sort of the default religious state Mm -hmm. of human beings. And what's distinctive about the West is that we have the idea that... Monotheism generally, and Christianity particularly, sort of put paid to this, or sort of defeated mm-hmm. um, defeated uh, the paganism when in the waning days of the Roman Empire. But that, in fact, maybe it's more the case. And again, this is obviously not a controversial position, but that that sort of basic default approach sort of survives throughout the Christian centuries in most many forms of folk spirituality and so on and then of course to further complicate things Christianity is itself the most imminent form of monotheism right in mm-hmm. the sense that it makes a claim that God entered the world and participated in it in a way that um, both Islam and Judaism in different ways find too imminent mm-hmm. um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity um, I mean I think what I'm most interested in is this in this subject is just sort of how you know if you can get to a point where and if we will ever get to a point where post-christian religion sort of achieves institutional and liturgical form mm-hmm. and isn't just sort of uh, you know, a kind of individualized tendency that is embodied in self-help books and wellness programs and, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, the spirituality of Goop and Oprah and so on. And Marianne Williamson. And Marianne Williamson, who dropped out of the presidential race while we were conducting this panel, clearly Mm -hmm. some sort of divine divine (laughs) sign. Um, And... I'm not I'm not sure what the what the answer to that is and maybe the answer is no maybe I mean th- there's this sense in which there's there's a sort of highbrow post-christian tendency that is mostly liberal and progressive that would be embarrassed to sort of participate in religious rituals mm-hmm. I think and then there's a more middlebrow tendency that might be post-christian and has rituals but they're very individualized and sort of anti-institutional. So Tara Burton Tara Burton the 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 other panelist was talking a lot about sort of the ri- the rise of modern witchcraft and mm-hmm. sort of neo-paganism, but how that is sort of bound up in that tendency is this sense that like this is an alternative to any kind of formal hierarchical religion and it's people who were burned by organized Christianity or Maybe Judaism in a few cases, and for whom
0: you mean? I mean, just have to be a little clear here. Burned, yeah. That that was, witchcraft that was here. perhaps perhaps
1: <laughs> not not the best not the best choice. Turned of words. off by, yeah. D- had had a difficult because <laughs> I, I was racking my brains. I was like, "Wow, when did what, the Jews I really, burn witches? Jews, I really went there, didn't I? Um, yeah, this is this is the excitement of podcasting. Uh-huh. You That's never right. know, you never know when, but." <laughs> But yeah, it just seems to me that there's a lot of sort of inchoate post-Christian religious energy floating around that takes a lot of different forms but it's hard to see how it gets institutionalized. And then you have these examples in the like Michael Burley books that, mm-hmm. that you were talking about where you ha- – it, it, there were sort of attempts by the state to do this, right? right. The French Revolution has the cult of reason, um, takes over Notre Dame the nazis sort of instantiate the nazis had liturgies oh
0: yeah right? Hor- horse vessel is the totally right. is a complete martyr figure right yeah
1: but are there liturgies of contemporary sort of post christianity right i'm i'm not i'm not sure that i'm not sure that there are right now
0: so what about the common argument which i think like many arguments has a smart version that is often crowded out by a lot of dumber versions. That environmentalism is playing that role to a certain extent, and that does have rituals, right? It does have dietary restrictions. It does have. Um, who's the theologian? You and Jack both know this. the guy who says that religion is basically the thing that addresses your ultimate concern. Um, it's Jack knows. Um, he's a Protestant. Ah, it's going to drive me crazy. He's a Protestant theologian. He's famous.
1: Not Tillich. Ma- no, I don't think nah, it's Tillich.
0: Anyway, but it, and it, part of his point was that, um, because death is no longer an imminent concern the way it was for most of human existence, um, Christianity, and I could be butchering it. So let's just ascribe it to me for the sake of
1: COVID this is sake. Goldbergian. Yeah, yeah Goldbergian uh, theology.
0: Uh, that because death is no longer. Something that happens constantly, um, you know the number of, number of kids who were, you know, it. You're right. is it Tillich? Okay, there you go. That's
1: why they pay me the big money?
0: And um, but so I mean, the point we're getting at is is that Christianity's power in Christian Europe prior to you know the Enlightenment and all that was that it provided a real answer about death. Right. And how to deal with death, how to put death in perspective, how to live a life in anticipation of death. Mm-hmm. And now how to have
1: hope in the face of death. Right.
0: right. And um, now death, I mean, I think everybody's still concerned about death. But when you don't see, you know, X percent of kids dying before the age of five and no one really living, you know, nine out of 10 people not making it past 35, it's not as powerful a presence in your life where, like, you know, a, a scratch that gets infected can kill you prior to penicillin. And so part, it seems to me part of the reason why environmentalism serves as, a, as, as this is that the personal wor- the personal concern about death has been sublimated by this concern about sort of end times and the death of the planet, the end of the natural order, blah, 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 climate change, yada, yada, yada. And there's a – I mean, the Michael Crichton speech, which people give uh, – go back and forth about how serious it is, there are some superficially pretty good points in it about how environmentalism does track, and you know, a lot of the anatomical stuff about Christianity—it's Edenic past that was trampled by knowledge. You know, Al Gore's "Earth in the Balance" has got a lot of this stuff that we we basically he replaces the serpent with Francis Bacon.
1: <laughs> um,
0: uh, anyway, what do you think about all of that?
1: So, I mean, I think well, I mean one there's. It's definitely the case that there's a certain genre of environmental doom personal essays, mm-hmm. especially I think that I've noticed in the last three or four years that read like displaced anxiety about your own mortality. Yeah, like reckoning with the you know the the possibility of a planetary apocalypse in a way that historically human beings reckoned with just the reality of their own their own death. And I think generally, yeah, I mean, I I, I think. I think it's absolutely the case that there is a lot of religious energy in environmentalism. Greta Thunberg is a Joan of Arc figure, mm-hmm. right? She's the, you know, the the maiden who emerges <laughs> from you know from obscurity to stand before kings and shame them, right. basically. And 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 I think very explicitly both certain forms of especially liberal Christianity and also some of the kind of pagan or paganish religious tendencies that we were talking about in this panel are kind of in dialogue with or sort of working off that um, that energy, right? That sense of, again, like the imminent divine, right? Mm-hmm. The sense that like divinity is somehow in the earth, it's in the ecosystem, it's in our natural habitat, that habitat is imperiled and therefore it's not just a political problem, it's a kind of religious cause and it it tracks i think with yeah i mean I, I, this i think a a, a desire for uh, a post-christian spirituality to be sort of seen as eminently scientific right i think there's a strong desire for people to be on the one hand, sort of Neil deGrasse Tyson, I effing love science mm-hmm. types, and also to have an outlet for religious energy and environmentalism seems to be the place where sort of the Venn diagram works. Um, so in all that, I I agree with you. I think the question that, and and to be clear, I don't I don't think in political terms that this is per se. A strike against environmentalism. Sure, no, right. Like I mean, sure. I think I think it's totally plausible that you could say, well, of course, you need a certain religious energy for a great crusade to save the earth. What What I'm interested in is whether that ever goes one step further, in the sense of, and, and I'm stealing this actually from a question someone asked in the panel discussion about the difference between ritual and liturgy, mm-hmm. because liturgy is sort of public and communal, right? Right, and so, you know, tracking your carbon footprint and recycling and having pictures of wolves howling on the moon in your refrigerator or having a, even having a shrine, even buying one of those James Comey candles that has Greta Thunberg on it, <laughs> that's ritual. But do you ever get beyond that to liturgy? Like, I mean, I mean Earth Day, right? So Earth Day is more liturgy, right? So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a holiday. It has communal gatherings. And there are things like that. But it, it feels like just to a certain extent since the collapse of the really hardcore state-based religions that the sort of post-Christian tendency has tended to sort of stall out somewhere between ritual and liturgy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, even, I don't know, e- yeah, the sort of, I guess you could argue that like the frenzy of a Twitter mob mm-hmm. is sort of liturgical. Like are the Mayanads ads, <laughs> is that a liturgy, like when they tear people apart and is that... <laughs> I, don't I mean, it's obviously an ambiguous case. But I do think that sort of when we talk about a post-Christian world, that that would be the decisive moment if you had like clear public liturgies that displace the Christian – the sort of Christian liturgy fully. And I don't think we're there yet. But you think that's the trend? You think that's where we're heading? I mean, I think – so I wrote I wrote a book eight years ago. That tried to explain all of American religion in terms of Christian heresy, mm-hmm. and of course, that book is still totally correct, and listeners should <laughs> buy it on Amazon. but I've revised that thesis a little bit in the sense that I think I think we've pushed a little bit further just in the intervening decade, and you you see this in in not just you know we're talking about sort of liberal and progressive causes, but even even on the right, right you have you know. Donald Trump is – in spite of the embrace of him by evangelicals, he's a more post-Christian figure mm-hmm. than George W. Bush. Um, and there is a sort of real Nietzschean portion mm-hmm. of the right now to a greater extent I think than mm-hmm. – you know. you you're a little older than me. But we mm-hmm. were sort of there in late 90s, early 2000s conservatism um, and which – and it takes the form – at the extreme of sort of you know wolves of Vinland, bring back Thor, <laughs> right? Neo paganism, but even like you know some of our friends at at the Claremont Institute and sort of the Bronze Age pervert stuff. Yeah. there's there's a sort of Nietzschean turn to that that I think is stronger than was the case 15 years ago. Um, and then on the left, right, like, you know, the witches hexing Brett Kavanaugh are, in a way, it's a silly thing. But in another way, it speaks to the fact that there actually are many more Americans today who identify as, in some sense, with Wicca or witchcraft or something in that zone than 10 years ago. Like, it's not like, I mean, it's not a critical mass, but it's a real it's a real. Trend and a real change. So I think that trend is real. There are there are Wicca chaplains in the military. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, there are certainly as many Wiccans as some of the small mainline Protestant denominations at this Mm -hmm. point. Again, whatever that means in practice. What? Where I hesitate to say that I think it's inevitable that this will just continue is that there's. It seems like there is this sort of hurdle that it's tough for post-Christian religion to get over. Where it's like a hurdle of well in part like i said going from ritual to liturgy from sort of the individual to the collective there's also a hurdle of getting i think the elite of the elite on board mm-hmm. right like this is sort of an upper middle class phenomenon but if you go to like yale law school you know or any other elite institution you won't find many people who are ready to actually participate in pagan rituals even if they might, you know, have some have some things in common ideologically, so I, I think it's tough. There's a degree of reenchantment that would be required uh, for sort of hashtag full paganism. I guess <laughs> that I'm not sure we can. I'm not sure we can get without some really radical, dramatic change. Which,
0: yeah, I mean, also isn't part of the problem. Isn't the problem of a developing a institutionalized organized pagan church the same problems that the actual existing churches have which is that the culture more and more partly because of this ultimate concern thing and people not worrying about that that i mean the judaism probably loses. i mean i don't know the numbers but it feels it's probably a sign of the world that i live in it feels like judaism loses more people to buddhism than it does to atheism yep Right. And the appeal of the sort of Jewish Buddhist hybrid stuff is The Judists. The Judists, yes. Um uh, which is so close to Druish, um for the Druids. Um but no is that the uh um is that it's 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 basically worship of self in a certain way. I don't mean it in sort of run amok ego, but it's sort of uh my body's a temple. Yep be a nice person, live an ethical life. I have a relative who, um, my poor wife, saying, so, you know, my wife raised Catholic, Fairbanks, Alaska, and we go to a bar mitzvah for a relative of mine. I got to be a little diplomatic about this. And um, they all, she, at the time, my wife was, ghost, was working for Sarah Palin. So you can, this is like 2008. People are freaking out, right? And they are just treating her like she's this, Unicorn slash ogre, you know, just this yep. exotic weird creature that the Unicoger. Yeah, yeah, the Unicoger. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and she, uh, and so this relative of mine says to her, Oh, yeah, you know, um, my son, who at the time was probably like 11, he's a passionate atheist. And she's saying this to, at a bar mitzvah party, right? <laughs> you know, and she says, and it's great our rabbi is so supportive. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife is like you guys you don't understand. I am not the freaky weird one here. <laughs> like for most Americans <laughs> if I were to tell them this story, you right. know, like I, you know and you know my and my wife's mom was a was a daily mass, good catholic and all that kind of stuff. That still strikes most people as more normal than than the sort of Jewish atheist thing or the Jewish Buddhist thing. But the Jewish-Buddhist thing is possible. I bet you there's someone at Yale Law School, both a professor and a student, and a couple of students, who are sort of Jewish-Buddhist, you know, don't necessarily believe in God, but believe in this sort of right. ethical culture stuff. But the problem with that is that it's, it's very difficult to have an orthodoxy and institutionalize anything. And it's probably much harder for the for the belief set that they have compared to say the Catholic Church which actually does have an argument for an a hierarchy and and institutions. And so I guess my question is that something some charismatic personality would have to come along to to short circuit the the rampant individualism that defines the the larger culture.
1: Right. And and this is one of the striking things about post 60s American religion is that even the charismatic gurus have not been big institution builders, mm-hmm. right? So one of the patterns in American history um, for a long time was that you would have, you know, a set of institutional forms of Christianity and then you would have religious freelancers and the religious freelancers could get, you know, quite wild, mm-hmm. right? Um, and But generally the most successful freelancers would build something that was eventually tugged back towards what was then sort of a Protestant Mm -hmm. mainstream, right, with the the two biggest examples being Mormonism and Christian science, right, both of which start in the 19th century as sort of intensely weird Mm. um, developments and, you know, never lose that completely. And obviously, there are still, you know, good Baptists who will denounce the cult of Mormonism. But... At a certain point, they look like, to some extent, like normal Protestant denominations. You take the last fifty years; the comparable figures sell books and have TV shows and mm-hmm. have disciples of some sort, but don't institution build in the same way. Like Marianne Williamson, right there, you know, she's not as important a figure as an Oprah Winfrey, but you know, she's a significant religious guru for mm-hmm. the last twenty-five years of American life, and there's no. You know, she has some followers and some kind of institution, but there's no church of Marianne Williamson that will endure the way Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science endured for generations after she was gone, and that does suggest that something, you know, something changed with the '60s that was like the basic American individualism. You know, something hit the accelerator, on it. Mm-hmm. and since then there just isn't this sort of at least in the few, few generations since, this sort of return to institutions. And that, you know, yeah, that means bad things for institutional Christianity. And it also makes it hard, you know, no matter how potent post-Christian religion becomes for it to instantiate itself. Yeah. Um, although I would say that, you know, you don't have to, you know, the, uh, the model of Catholicism, where you have a sort of central dogmatic institution, is not the only way you can institutionalize forms of faith, right? Mm -hmm. And you can have a sort of, you know, a religious culture that's much more ritual-focused than dogma-focused, for Mm -hmm. instance. And this is at least debatably true of a lot of pre-Christian religion in the West. So if, like— you know if there was a burning man in every county and people sent their kids to burning man at age 16 as a rite of passage or something right. like you know you you could imagine things that that were a little bit different from how we conceptualize institutional religion but that were more institutional than what we have now
0: so do you think transcendence is required for your def- for a definition of religion or not at
1: all or i mean uh, you know, defining religion is like a, a fool's errand to some, to some extent. I, I mean, I, I don't think I wrote a book eight years ago. I about don't religion. think right. I, I don't think it's bad religion. I was just defining one kind of religion. I don't think it's necessary for the religious impulse. Right. I think it's totally fair to say, for instance, you know, international communism attracted a religious impulse, even sure. though it didn't posit a transcendent God. Um, but I tend to think that uh, I guess I'd say when I conceive of religion, it involves supernatural realities of some metaphysical realities of some mm-hmm. sort. It doesn't have to be transcendent in the sense of out the way Christians conceive of God sort of creating the universe ex nihilo and, and sort of as a ground of the universe outside it. Um, it can be that sort of, you know the supernatural and transcendent exists in some relationship with matter and the, and the material. Um, when I think, yeah, I mean, my, yeah, the doubt that definition of religion focuses on sort of supernatural and metaphysical realities as crucial. There's like, that line about the
0: Chinese that they're the least religious but most superstitious people in the world? You know, they got all-
1: Right. And so under my theory, they would be religious. Under my definition uh-huh. of religion, they are just not institutionally religious, but practically religious. And the same with like, uh, you know, the sort of the belief in, well, to take two very different secularized countries, the belief in ghosts in Japan and the belief in fairies in Iceland Mm -hmm. are both religious beliefs under my definition, even though they don't manifest themselves necessarily in institutional forms, um, I guess. I'm sort of I'm making this up on the fly. No, no, line. no, that's I, what I mean. next time you have me on, I'll revise I, 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 and look, retract.
0: I, I, I find all this stuff very interesting. I'm assuming any listeners who are still with us too. So, <laughs> um, so let's let's change gears slightly, just ever so slightly. And I'm reluctant to get back in the weeds of this because it finally seems to have gone away. But the whole first things David French stuff, right? All that kind of stuff. The yes, integralist. Yes, yadda yadda yadda.
1: Yes, you're reluctant uh, and yet.
0: And yet, I'm compelled. And yet, here you are. Um, uh, I, cu- I could have gone I mean, a different. I way. I
1: survived moderating a French Amari debate, man. So I can take anything you throw at me. I
0: salute you. Um, uh, without, I, 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 I thought of a different segue, which was the number of Americans who put down Jedi as their religion, which would get us to that Star Wars. W- that
1: would get us to David French.
0: Yeah, but yeah. But, uh, um, but this this project, right, of the highest good conservatism, right? We'll call mm-hmm. it that. It's. It seems to me that what it's part of what it's doing is the sort of age-old habit of weak actors looking to get the state to do things that you can't get done in the marketplace. It's not the perfect analogy. But this idea that we can't win the argument out in the culture, out in the, the, the marketplace of ideas or just in the marketplace, to be honest – um so therefore if we can dragoon the right set of politicians get them into office they can impose stuff that we're too weak to do on our own. Um do you think that's fair? Do you think that's accurate? Do you think that I mean it just it seems to me it's a it, it, I'm
1: a I'm a moderator, Jonah. i moderate. <laughs> <laughs> the different factions of I, I understand political Christianity. You've right always now. been
0: very good at maintaining your credibility in all the different camps <laughs> and it comes to an end now.
1: <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I don't know how deep in the weeds you want to get, but I'll, I'll, let me make a couple of points. First is the point I tried to make unsuccessfully in the end when I was sitting with both David French and Sora Amari, mm-hmm. uh, both of whom I am, I think, still friendly with, sure. uh, which was that some of this is a some of it is the weakness that you're describing or the sense of sort of crisis and defeat magnifying philosophical differences mm-hmm. that are not quite as large in practice right and you know the the, the example a sort of paradigmatic example being that one of the things that the new integralists or you know, new political Christians or whatever you want to call them have, have argued is that basically we should revive the battle over pornography, mm-hmm. right? That, it's, that there's been this sort of surrender uh, among social conservatives on porn with the internet era that was unwise and unwarranted and that when you look around at sort of the romantic and social and sexual culture, you can see pornography doing all kinds of damage uh, and in fact, that, and I agree with all that, right? And but more more than that, David French agrees with maybe not all of that mm-hmm. in the sense that you know he doesn't think the fight against porn is worth electing Donald Trump, which mm-hmm. is the other thing that these are sort of proxies right. for. But you know, if you ask David French, does the First Amendment cover pornography? He would basically say no. Right? Mm-hmm. And can you legislate against pornography? He would basically say yes. So on one of the crucial issues where this sort of cashes out, you know, where you're sort of saying, well we can we should be able to talk about, if not the highest good, at least a slightly higher good in how we think about obscenity laws. You know, French and Amari actually kind of agree and could shake hands and be friends, although I didn't I didn't quite achieve that when I was with them both. And I, I think there are other examples of this, right? That like the, you know, the the Amarists are you know, probably closer to where I've been for a long time in terms of support for populist economic policies, mm-hmm. right? But And that is a reflection of sort of their deeper philosophical commitments, but it's also something that puts them in the same camp as, uh, you know, well, just to take an example, my former co-author, Raihan Salam, sure. right, who you know well, who is nobody's idea of a Catholic integralist, right? Mm-hmm. There's There's long been a certain kind of support for this among conservative intellectuals who are not at all uh, integralists. So, I, so that's that's one point I'd make. That mm-hmm. the sort of, there's a tendency in moments of sort of political crisis or political weakness to sort of rush to philosophical abstractions. And if you can get back to the concrete, sometimes mm-hmm. some of the some of the furious argument diminishes a little bit. But the other thing I'd say is that the so David French, um, you're colleague at the Dispatch right Mm -hmm. now, um, who's been writing fascinating pieces, wrote a piece, I think it was today, sort of giving his history of the religious liberty debate, Mm -hmm. right? And um, he basically said, I'm going to really tersely summarize. He he said, look, the real story of the history of the religious liberty debate is that there was a a de facto Protestant establishment in American life and the supreme court in the 1940s and 50s smashed that establishment with the school prayer rulings and a whole bunch of church state rulings that did away with you know bible reading in school prayer in school and so on and from that point on there was a period where the liberty of christians to practice in public spaces became severely restricted mm-hmm. and Because people were so cowed by these rulings or they affected jurisprudence in various ways. And then as that started to be unwound as the modern movement for greater religious liberty came into being, Antonin Scalia issued this famous ruling that further seemed to circumscribe religious liberty, which led to the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and supported by Bill Clinton and sort of led to this further wave of – pushes for religious liberty, which French has been part of and which have been very successful in many ways, but have happened to coincide with the steep decline in institutional strength in Christian churches. And I think David's view is that Christians are confusing to some extent that institutional decline with the state of their liberties. And in fact, their liberties are in pretty good shape relative to where they were 40 years ago. It's just that Fewer people are Christian, so there's new grounds of contest and new misunderstandings that make it harder to compromise. Anyway, I'm yeah that no. concludes. But so to actually to actually bring it to a point, what the what Sorab and people like him would say about that story is that well, but the story starts with doesn't start with the marketplace of ideas. It starts with government power. Mm-hmm. It starts with An existing Protestant establishment that had a certain amount of government power on its side that a different form of government power smashed Mm -hmm. and that maybe that smashing had as much to do with the subsequent institutional decline of Christianity as just sort of broader trends in the culture. And I'm not – I wouldn't totally agree with that but I don't think it's totally wrong either. I I think there's – I think there is – the marketplace of ideas, what we think of as the marketplace of ideas, is shaped by state action, no matter what, sure, sure, in all sure. in all kinds of ways, and that, yeah, I don't, I'll just trail off there. Yeah, no, that's I fine.
0: I mean, so I, I'm, I'm very sympathetic with all that, and I appreciate your trying to keep mom and dad from getting divorced approach to these things. But um,
1: <laughs> my parents are divorced, so <laughs> um, I've, I've failed once before, but.
0: Uh, and I could even I could even for the sake of argument, or maybe even more than the sake of argument, stipulate to a lot of it, but it still leaves the and therefore what problem, right? And the the idea that you know, there's this line from Rousseau where he says censorship is vital for preserving morals, but it is useless for restoring them. That smashing, whether it was good or bad, right. happened. And the idea that in this country, you can use the state to actually restore religious values particularly at a time when just as a matter of electoral numbers, the number of people who subscribe to those religious values is shrinking seems far-fetched to me. And the idea that the post-integralist Catholic first things stuff – that that is going to win converts to the Catholic worldview when the Catholic Church cannot win converts to the Catholic worldview seems unlikely to me. I mean, you wrote that great essay in First Things, what, 15 years ago, Theocracy, Theocracy. I think the last word was theocracy. Yes. Um, I'm not saying there – I don't think Zorab is necessarily a theocrat depending on how you want to define the term.
1: Um, I, I think he's not. But, um, but but certainly there are there are people who are – you know, meaningful voices in Catholic debates right now who are, (laughs) who, who who would be defy. I mean, I think integralism and theocracy are different, Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. um, from the point of view of, you know, the man on the street, they're theocrats. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so I, I, so, you know, I am, I'd say for a long time, I was the youngest person on the right writing in favor of censorship? Because I actually have found, like, the Walter Burns and Irving Crystal view on some of this stuff very compelling. I remember Irving saying at a panel in 1992, he was, oh, I'm so nostalgic. You know, when I was a kid, what's the uh, the tr- Tropic of Cancer, the famous sort of smutty?
1: Oh, Henry Green, the Tropic of Cancer? The, the Tropic, Tropic, of Tropic of
0: Cancer. cancer
1: uh, Lady and, Chatterley's love.
0: No, but it was some something, something in that family. In, yeah, yeah. And um and he was like,
1: Yeah, the book comes
0: out and you know, you go down to Scribner's on Fifth Avenue and you see a look in the bookstore and, and it has a big banner up in the window saying banned in Boston and that's what made you want to buy it, because it was banned in Boston, because that they were run by Puritans up there and blah 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 blah. I do think the internet changes the equation because it's now a nationalized, instantly accessible from your home marketplace rather than You know the places where you could put reasonable restrictions on things, but I I I probably share the indict. I I subscribe to the indictment of the smashing of of the the sort of new house you know public square role of religion in life. Even as I say this, is a pretty secular Jew, but it seems to me that it's not just the integralists. It's the uh, it's the it's those um. You know, those, those noted constitutionalists and theologians at the Kirkwell Center. Um, do you know what the Kirkwell Center is?
1: What's the Kirkwell Center?
0: Uh, Charlie Kirk and oh. Jerry Falwell Jr. have started a center at Liberty University. Called the K- Kirkwell Center? Called the Kirkwell Center. and um, I guess
1: I shouldn't admit to my ignorance <laughs> um, of this, and um, but that's pretty amazing.
0: It's friggin' hilarious. And um, to defend uh, Jesus in the market, or something to that effect, mm-hmm. and— But it seems to me that a large swath of the evangelical, let's put it this way. If this country were 90% believing church attending um, Protestants and Catholics, a lot of the moral or political compromises that people made to defend voting for Donald Trump would not be necessary, right? You would not hear all, he's like King David, you would not have all of the statements that all of the standards that they held up high in the Clinton era they would not throw away I mean they're, they're explicit about this they were under siege we're victims therefore we need our champion our you know our our pagan gladiator to defend our religion and it just seems to me that there are no shortcuts here you can't I, are there sort of good conservative, Socially conservative policies that the federal government could do that would make things better? Sure. Open to that. Could we figure out some interesting policy solutions to deal with some of the porn stuff? I hope so. You know, and I've actually suggested some. But the idea that you're going to make the country more religious by electing the right person just strikes me as a real problem and a real source of misplaced energy for religious people.
1: Right. And so I'm... I, I agree with you basically and I guess that's I'm closer to David French uh-huh. on the view of Trump right and some since some of this is a debate a sort of proxy debate over Trump yeah I'm I'm on the I'm I'm on the Frenchist side of that debate and I and I don't think I don't think sort of a highest good conservatism can Whatever that might mean, right? Right. Have him as the standard succeed, bearer, <laughs> right? Can succeed as long as it's sort of presenting itself, and not just presenting. I mean, it's not just the sort of presentation of like, well, we made this necessary compromise with this guy, even as we regard him as debased. It's this larger defense of him that right. ends up, that ends up inevitably being offered. I, I'm not. I don't totally agree, though, about the point about sort of first things. Political Catholicism being unlikely to win Americans if the Catholic Church can't win Americans. Um, I think the the non-integralist case for Catholic integralism, if I if I may suggest it, is that it's in at least in the ideal form. It's an attempt to avoid what the amazing I can't believe it exists Kirkwell <laughs> is doing right, which is the you know the problem. It's Falkirk. Oh, is it Falkirk. Falkirk
0: I could swear it was Kirkwell. Well, oh, I apologize. So that's the
1: well Falkirk. Oh, so it's like a William Wallace kind of right? It wasn't Falkirk was one of the battles.
0: No, 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 no. It's it's an amalgam of no, Falkirk. no. I know, but I'm saying they're
1: they're referencing, they're reaching for some Braveheart yeah, stuff. I, I, I think possi- possibly, possibly, right? Falkirk. I, I apologize I for Wallace my error. Lose, thank thank he you. He might Jeff. have lost at Falkirk. Anyway. Anyway, be that, would be that be that, that, would that be as it may, right? <laughs> so the problem, one of one, of, it's not the only reason, but one of the many problems that religion, both the religious left and the religious right, have had in this age of polarization, is that they are seen as captives of political coalitions. If mm-hmm. you're not, a, if you're not on the left. You don't want to be part of the religious left, and if you're not on the right, you don't want to be part of the religious right, and those are the religious games in town, so you might as well ditch religion altogether. The impulse behind at least some of the Catholic integralist stuff is an attempt to rebel against that and say, look, Catholicism is a worldview unto itself. Mm-hmm. It's not just a sort of sub project of the three legged stool of movement conservatism. We have things to say not just about abortion and pornography but about economics and you know foreign policy and all and all and all of these different things and and we want to offer you know we want to offer Catholicism in all its capaciousness as something that should inform american public life and i I think that there is a you know, not an attraction that carries all before it. But I think that is to some people, and I know a lot of these people, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) They're people who are younger than me. It's more attractive than the sense of like Catholicism as sort of a coalition piece, you know, along with Grover Norquist Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, along with these other groups in in this tent sort of defending whatever conservative America was supposed to be. And in that sense, it's like the point you make about sort of becoming a minority, there's... The positive side of that is it's liberating. You say, all right, you know, we're a, we're a minority. The sort of, you know, lowest sort of mere Christianity, Christian culture is gone. So we're just going to offer you our church as a worldview unto itself and try and attract people that way. And again, I agree that it doesn't go well with the Trump phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I, I, right? I, so I,
0: I, the way you make the case, I am – much more sympathetic, but when I was first introduced to this whole project, I was also told that Donald Trump is a force of social cohesion, In um, Saurabh's so blindside, and the fact that they picked, out, picked on David French as the emblem of all that is wrong told me that this had a lot more to do with grubby internecine um, egghead fights. Than a serious project because David is like I mean I'm a much better target Brett Stevens is a much better target you know, there lots, you're a much you're a better target
1: can't can't we just leave New York Times columnist <laughs> <Just, laughs>
0: and just, just, so anyway we don't I, and I we've done this a billion times on this podcast so we don't need to do it again but I just I wanted to get your take on it um
1: I mean I think I also think you shouldn't overread I think Sarab's piece on David touched a nerve without necessarily, even from Sorab's own perspective, representing mm-hmm. sort of the, the, the sort of definition of a project. I mean, you know how punditry is. You know, right? I, know, I mean, I know. we write columns. He got mad about Drag Queen Story Hour, and he was angry about David French, and he wrote something against David Frenchism, and we've been sort of backfilling yeah. a real, I mean, this is a real, like, division and and debate. Um, But I think even, I think Sorab himself has sort of, he apologized for some of right. the tone he took in the piece. And and there is also, there is a big difference between what, you know, Sorab stands for, I think, something that really is pretty compatible with the sort of Richard John Newhouse project. It's just maybe a more vehement f- form of that project that is reacting to defeat by be- trying to become more ambitious. And that is different from um, the sort of, full integralism of parts of the Catholic internet, which is, you know, yeah, more unlikely to sort of lead to sweeping transformation in American life. Yeah, look, I mean,
0: I'll I'll just admit my baggage. You don't have to respond to this, but like, you know, Rusty Reno has gone out of his way to attack me more than once, calling me the, I I epitomize or I symbolize all of the decadence of our culture. (sighs) And this is a guy who, like, I mean,
1: since I've written a book on decadence, uh-huh. I can, I can, I can firmly weigh in as the pope of decadence and say I don't think you represent all the
0: decadence. I, I, I am, I am the first to concede there are decadent parts about me, but and you know, there is this, there is this gleeful attempt to grab the choicest haunches from the carcass of the pre-Trump understanding of conservatism. And it causes a lot of people to say really very, very silly
1: things. Such as, do you want the exact quote that Reno said?
0: Sure, why not?
1: Jonah Goldberg exemplifies the decadence and dysfunction of today's public discourse. There you go.
0: And this was in response to uh, – this was ostensibly supposedly a review of my book, which he clearly from the rest of the piece hadn't read. And it was all because I actually defended free market capitalism and because I don't like the New Deal, um, which he is very fond of for reasons that he has never persuasively explained. But anyway, we don't need to turn this into a pile on Rusty Reno and I know that this,
1: this upsets your – No, I'm just keeping, your, no, I'm not, not, I'm ke- just keeping everybody – Everybody together. Kinda. Yeah. Hey, blessed are the peacemakers.
0: So, all right. So, uh, in a few moments, let's. Uh, I want to get to some quick pop culture uh, quick takes um, since you are, as I used to when I was at National Review, I'd always refer to you as National Review's film critic, who also apparently has a column on the yeah. side, right? Um, but uh, uh, we should mention that you have a book coming out shortly and you're going to come back on and talk about that. We've steered clear of talking about. All of that stuff, in part because I haven't read the book yet. Um,
1: but I if... now need to go look at the index to make sure that you are not attacked <laughs> as an embodiment of decadence. <laughs> I think I think not, but I, I'll make sure before I come back. I, 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 but I, the book is also mildly pro-decadence, uh-huh. too. So the book The book is called The Decadence Society. And um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come back and talk about it. But if you want to pre-order it now, you can.
0: And it's but it's not a spenglerian argument about the decline of
1: or is it <laughs> it's it's an it's an argument it's it's definition of decadence is more about stagnation drift and repetition than mm-hmm. it is about like total decline uh-huh. and collapse so i'm trying to position myself in between the people who think the world is about to end and the sort of stephen pinkers mm-hmm. who say everything is getting better in every way all the time and i'm arguing more that we've we're sort of stuck and have been stuck for a few generations, and that there are worse things than being stuck. This is the case—the case, the case for, for decadence. But that the longer you're stuck, the more dystopian things can get.
0: I'm, sounds like I'm very sympathetic to that. I
1: Excellent. Mean, well, I'll go through in, in your copy, cross <laughs> out the, the personal attacks on your dogs. Uh, you know, no,
0: look at you. know, I have the paperback version of my book coming out soon, and the you know it's weird in that a lot of the sort of social conservative, religious right people. Their it seems to be their biggest critique of the book was that it was a book called Suicide of the West was way too upbeat, <laughs> and I, I always joke is like, what do you want me to call it? Take a bath with a toaster, <laughs> and um, uh, that's the next book. But I think Pinker, I, I, I get a lot out of Pinker, and some I really like some of his previous books, but his treatment of you know the Enlightenment as a single thing I think is just deeply deeply flawed. There was. Lots of different enlightenments, and there were good and bad aspects to all of them. I mean, the best ones were obviously Scottish.
1: If it's no Scottish, it's crap.
0: But um,
1: uh, Falkirk, but the, the Falkirk Institute, but for the uh, Enlightenment you know, Studies Land.
0: The German Enlightenment left something to be desired, despite you know uh, Rich's recent book on nationalism, and um, he's more he. he I, I love Rich Lowry, but he told me he is much more pro. Um, Johan Herter than I am, so we can have that conversation another time. So anyway, uh, Star Wars. Uh, your take on the latest?
1: Well, I mean, at the risk of just talking my own book, it's decadence. I uh-huh. mean, this is so. This is this is the what the the original Star Wars movies are you know, famously sort of a pastiche and he's bringing in lots of different cinematic influences and so on. But they're doing something interesting and new and inventing a kind of movie that Mm -hmm. in the modern Hollywood era hadn't existed before. And the prequels then are trying to go from that and do something else that's new. And, you know, we focused on how terrible the prequels were Mm -hmm. when they came out and I'm not a revisionist on the prequels. They are terrible. I'm not one of those people. I think like David French who will argue that like Revenge of the Sith is actually a good movie. It's not a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um the new movies make you appreciate the fact that Lucas, however incapable he was of following through, was trying to tell a different story. He said he, you know, he had his sort of heroic arc in the original trilogy and he was trying to tell a really know, powerful, tragic decline and fall story where the decline of a republic is manifest in the corruption of Anakin Skywalker and so on. The new movies are just the first movies all over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, The Force Awakens literally has exactly the same plot as the first Star Wars. And this one is, you know, without too many spoilers – Ends in exactly the same place that Return of the Jedi ends, with the same villain and the same complicated figures confronting mm-hmm. the villain, and and the and but their remakes that make things worse because the sort of political military drama of the new movies uh, is just sort of embarrassing. Yeah, it's it's dumb, just I it's really- just like the galaxy you know the all the victories that were won in the original movies are meaningless they get wiped out you know in the in midway through the force awakens the whole rebel alliance is reduced to a single ship by the end of the second movie and then in the third movie we get this you know absurd like you know, galactic up with people movement that defeats the empire, or excuse me, defeats the first order. It's That's not right. the or oh, the, the final, final order. The <laughs> final order. So I mean, the thing. So the thing. I- I'll say one positive thing. I I think the Kylo Ren Ray dynamic at at the center of the movies is actually effective. Partially because Adam Driver is just a really good actor, but partially because his character is new and interesting. It's something mm-hmm. that really kind of what Anakin Skywalker should have been, a yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. undisciplined guy tempted by the dark side. So those parts of the movies I generally like and I just wish I wish you could embed Kylo Ren and Rey in a better version of the prequels mm-hmm. and just lose all of the other drama in these movies entirely. That's my take. And The Mandalorian. I've only seen 3 episodes. I think it's closer to. So far, I think it and Rogue One are the yeah. two. I, I, I yeah, I, I haven't I haven't seen it all, but I think Rogue One is the only new Star Wars movie that I think fits in pretty well with the original. And the Mandalorian seems to be in a similar space, like handling the the, the ways in which the original movies sort of worked in Western themes and stuff, are – Sort of, I think are. I mean, it's a western, right?
0: Yeah, so. the Mandalor- uh, yeah. It's absolutely it's a western. A, it's yeah.
1: a space western, and yeah. you know, John Favreau is very talented. And I think, in, apart from like the cuteness of Baby Yoda, it seems it seems like it could be the the this the shrunken canon in my head that is really three movies plus Rogue One might have room for
0: the Mandalorian. Mandalorian yeah, I mean, I, I, I the Mandalorian is so unapologetic and it's ripping off of westerns that it makes it endearing in a way sort of in its own way. And the the dialogue isn't nearly as good as in Firefly, but Firefly was so unapologetically just a Western, just a Western. you know, yep. outlaw Josie Wales in space basically. Oh, speaking of which I just saw on a plane, so this is not topical and will ruin it for anybody, but I just finally watched Ad Astra, the mm-hmm. Brad Pitt movie. Did you, or did anybody point out that it was, it, it seemed to want to be, Apocalypse Now in space? I mean, was that... I think that was in, yeah, that was in some of the reviews. Okay, because it was just so heavy-handed and yet boring. (laughs) Um.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, I mean, space movies, this is also part of my decadence Mm -hmm. theory that the the sort of death of the space age was this crucial turning point where the frontier was closed and Mm -hmm. so on. And so space movies now, not always, Interstellar is the big love it For example, because yeah. Interstellar is literally like anti-decadence, right? Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. the theme of the movie. Like we can we can go to space and they'd forgotten that they'd gone to space. But so many space movies are just, yeah, they're sort of heart of darkness in space in various ways. Like aliens are out there. They'll kill you. Gravity, Apollo 13. They're, they're all different movies about like returning to Earth and escaping.
0: Have you seen The Expanse?
1: I have not watched The Expanse. So the,
0: it'd be interesting to hear you fit this into your thesis because yeah. it's – I love it. I think it's a great show. And the one thing it has in common with the Ad Astra thing is, which I think is a really good development, is the realistic and compelling portrayal of what near future space travel is like. You know, I mean, like the the one the the, the pioneering movie in that was was Outland. Or Outland, the Sean Connery oh, movie about yeah. the miners in space. Yep. Right, that was the first movie I think that pointed out that if you put someone in space without countervailing atmospheric pressure, they basically blow up. And they took it a little too far. I don't think they... They blow up like when they play rock music to the mice in the Ramones movie in Rock and Roll High School, which is, I don't think is scientifically accurate. But but The Expanse works really, really hard to be... Except for, like, the alien part, which, you know, yeah, is complicated. But... but on Well, the,
1: aliens are making a comeback. But...
0: The Terran technology... The human technology about, like, what pre-Faster-than-light travel... And space exploration would look like where we can't get out of the solar system is done really, really well. And and it is – going by your version of it, it is not decadent. Yeah. Sort of like getting – we yeah. got to get off yeah. Earth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: do they uh, – in, in the realism zone, do they have space battles on the show? And do they, things they, blow up in sp- – is there sound in the battles?
0: Um, they're pretty good about it. The, the, the explosions, the, the, the space battles – they're basically done with machine guns, big powerful rail guns. Mm-hmm. Um it's not lasers, you know, no right. pew pew, none of that stuff. And uh and they're constantly dealing with the fact that they haven't invented anti-gravity stuff yet. So on all of the smaller ships, they all walk around with ma- with magnetized boots, you know, which is a nice yeah. sort of thing. I mean there's a lot of those little touches that are really well done and the the politics is are really good in that the 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 what they call belters, the Communities that have built up as mining communities on the asteroid belt—they all speak basically like a um, uh, pigeon English, patois kind of. I mean, it's really kind of cool that they would have. A, a, right, they figure out that humans are going to develop accents wherever they go, that kind of thing. So no, I, I think it's really, it's really pretty
1: cool. Um, all right, you've sold me. Okay, you should check it. But out. it's a big the, the the struggle there is that it's a show that there's enough of it that I'd have to watch it with my wife, so I'd have to sell her. Yeah. On on it, but.
0: Um, the fact that John Padortz hates it, maybe i don 't know if that helps you or not <laughs> um, uh, but you can do it for spite, okay um, anyway uh, ross do that do do thit, do it uh, thank you so much for being on the The book is called the Decadent Society, and it goes on sale when
1: uh, february twenty fifth
0: I and think we will have you back to talk about it
1: i I would love to
0: We it move books on this honor. podcast so this podcast I believe it product yeah. yeah. And I, I gotta admit i'm um i'm I'm kind of proud of Jack that he didn't get in a whole dune reference about how the whole thing was moving to get away from remember the god emperor's plan is to sort of
1: break the patterns of history, but we'll have do you want me on here? <laughs> I've... I will come back. I will come back for the show when the Denis Villeneuve Dune movie comes out. All right. We can, we can do, a, we can do an all. You'll have to kill me first. <laughs> Are you anti-Dune? No. I was no, like saying that I won't let you in here. I will pog the studio. I refuse to let anyone else. <laughs> well, I, I'm it. I'm not. I'm a huge fan of the original Dune novel, but I could never get through the God Emperor books. So you could just have me to talk about the original, and then you guys could get into Heretics of Dune and every you know when they turn into giant sandworms or whatever, all that all that absurd stuff. Not the like wow. gritty realism. You, are,
0: you don't understand. You are, you are just the, never, s- the pedestal that Jack had you never on. Never meet <laughs> your heroes.
1: You're not even <laughs> describing what happens accurately. <laughs>
0: wow. Alright, everybody. Thanks so much. Please go to thedispatch.com to sign up for everything and we'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is
0: Arrakis. <laughs> oh, life bigger, it's bigger than you, and you are not me The links that I will go to, the distance in your eyes Oh no, I've said too much I set it up That's me in the corner
1: It's not exactly implausible. No, it's only like... Yeah, it's only 50% insane. (laughs) Um...